Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And I want to start out the program today uh, with Dr. Trita Parsi, the professor at Georgetown University, author most recently of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy. His website, TritaParsi.com, and you can tweet him at TParsi. Dr. Parsi, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great talking with you. I always learn something from you. I'm curious your take on the current state. The U.S. government is arguing that they've got video of an Iranian army boat or, or navy boat coming up to one of these tankers and removing a mine from the side of it. The owner of the tanker is saying, no, it wasn't a mine that hit us. We've got Seymour Hirsch. I'm going to play that clip after we talk where uh, Seymour Hirsch was talking some time back about how he had reported for, I believe it was for the New York Times, that Dick Cheney in a meeting had suggested that the U.S. Army build a couple of these boats that look identical to these Iranian boats and use them to provoke an incident in the Gulf to have a war with Iran. <laughs> this is getting bizarre. What's solid? What isn't? What do we know? What do we not know? We know extremely little, to be frank, because I think, frankly, that the so-called evidence that the administration has put out has actually confuse people more because it's just so weak. I mean, these videos hardly show anything. Uh, first of all, we don't know if it's the Iranian. Secondly, removing a mine does not mean that they put the mine there. In fact, if they were there saving some of the sailors who were on that boat, which is something that crew members of the boat themselves have said, and they see that there's an unexploded mine on the boat, it is the responsible thing to remove it. And they may have done so precisely because they wanted to see, collect that evidence and see who actually did do this. So we don't know. And if the administration actually has any evidence, they should be putting it out in a way that actually is convincing, rather in a manner that only really strengthens the impression that the administration is willing to start a war with Iran, regardless of what the facts are. I mean, coming out with a press conference within hours of this incident really signals the strong desire for escalation because there's no way that by that time they would have already been able to have a strong assessment of what had happened. And I think another point that is very critical to understand in all of this is that 
Pompeo did not come out in the press conference and say that he had an intelligence finding. Uh, in fact, he didn't use the word evidence even once. What he said was that he had a government assessment. There's a significant difference between the two. An intelligence finding is actually based on facts. It comes with various degrees of confidence. It has some specific standards. A government assessment is essentially just his opinion. There's nothing more to it. There's no standards. There's no degrees of confidence or anything like that. Hmm. But he used that word because I think he thinks and he knows that it carries more weight than it actually does have. It sounds more important and serious than it actually is. And I think that's a specific way of trying to deceive the American public. Now, on five different occasions during the Obama presidency leading up to the 2020, as I recall, 2010 and 2012 elections, Donald Trump tweeted that any minute now Barack Obama then president is going to start a war with Iran in order to help Democrats or in order to help himself get reelected. Obviously, Trump thinks that a war with Iran is a good electoral strategy for a president facing reelection or whose party is facing reelection. And one of the press narratives is that you've got, you know, Bolton and Pompeo, who are you know, Bolton in particular, enthusiastic about a war with Iran and Trump, who is enthusiastic about talking about a war with Iran, but doesn't really want the responsibility of having an actual war with a real country that can fight back, that hasn't been weakened by years of sanctions and incompetent governance like Iraq was under, under uh, Saddam Hussein or Afghanistan was under the Taliban. And that dynamic is going to somehow keep us safe and keep Iran safe. I'm kind of skeptical of that media narrative. What, what are your thoughts on what might be going on in the White House and how we should be understanding this? My own impression is that actually what Trump tweeted back then may have been his assessment then. Uh, I don't think it is his assessment right now. He knows quite well that he actually did uh, carry a lot of states because of his strong anti-war sentiments and his message and being very critical of the Iraq war. That, however, is not the case for Bolton. Bolton clearly uh, supported the war. He uh, helped lure the American people into it. He continues to say that the Iraq war was a success. His track record of wanting war with Iran is impeccable. It is more than two decades long. I think what is happening is that Trump wants to get to the negotiations. He doesn't know how. The Israelis, the Saudis, uh, Bolton have presented him with a path that is based on maximum pressure. It sounds good on paper. Uh, they've convinced Trump that that is the way to go. But they themselves know that this is a strategy that will fail to secure negotiations, but rather will drive the United States into a corner in which Trump's only way out may end up being military action, because that is their objective. Iran says in the next four days going to be exceeding the uranium concentration or whatever the proper word is threshold that was set in the Iran deal in the in the in this uh, multi-nation agreement that Donald Trump pulled us out of what does that mean I mean are, are they saying that they're going to go up to that point and stop or are they saying that they're just going to break through and the deal is falling apart and how are the Europeans responding are they are they attempting to for example break through some of the sanctions where are we at on that so the Iranians are saying that they're now going to start breaching some of the limits that the deal imposed on them. This is more than a year after the U.S. walked out of the deal, more than two years after the U.S. has undermined any sanctions relief and actually reimposed the sanctions. What they are doing, though, is very easily reversible. And they've already signaled that if the Europeans 
start uh, living up to their obligations under the deal, which means that they have to start uh, trading with Iran as they were before Trump reimposed the sanctions, then they will then reverse these measures and go back into full compliance. Um, I think it indicates that they actually do want to be in compliance, but they are absolutely sick and tired of being the only country that actually is adhering to the deal. Because as much as the Europeans are speaking very positively and sending strong political signals about how important the deal is, they are not abiding by the deal. They are abiding by Trump's sanctions. They have stopped all purchases of Iranian oil. They have stopped a lot of airlines uh, from Iran to land in Europe. Uh, all of financial transactions with Iran essentially have been stopped. They are not adhering to the nuclear deal. They're adhering to Trump sanctions, the very same sanctions that they object to and believe are illegal. Nevertheless, they're adhering to it. And the Iranians are now essentially saying, well, there's going to be a cost for you if you don't live up to the nuclear deal, but live up to uh, Trump's um, uh, extortions. Uh, I hope this doesn't go too far, because I think it would be a very, very bad thing if the deal collapses altogether. But what the Iranians are doing was completely predictable. The Europeans, frankly, believe that the Iranians would do this sooner. Uh, I think we've all been lucky that the Iranians haven't done this this far, thus far. Now, for some time, it's been fairly apparent that uh, the hard right in Israel, Netanyahu in particular, and the the hard right in Saudi Arabia, which is basically all of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, have wanted Iran to be in a war. Um, by and large, they have wanted Iran to be in a war with the United States. <laughs> you know, not them, but but uh, you know, Saudi, uh, correct me if I'm if my memory is incorrect, but I believe Israel has has struck Iranian nuclear facilities in the past. It was uh, you know uh, more than a decade ago. Um, if Iran was to exceed the, the threshold of the deal, and if, uh, for example, Israel or Saudi Arabia were to, uh, you know, do some small, uh, you know, take out a nuclear facility in Iran, uh, where could that lead? And if this becomes something that resembles the beginning of a hot war, um, what are the possibilities in your mind that the United States and Russia, Russia being Iran's ally, uh, the U.S. being the ally of Saudi Arabia and Israel in the region, um, might end up in either a proxy war or an all-out war. And we have about a, a minute and a half here before we hit a hard break. The, the risk for a, a big war is very significant. The idea that there could be a small attack and that it would be contained and that the Iranians would not retaliate is very, very unlikely. Um, but if you want to sell a big war in these circumstances, you will try to market it as a small war. That's the only chance you have in actually being able to get it. And um, the scenario that you pointed out that the Israelis would take military action as they did against Iraq back in the early 1980s would most likely lead to a, a wider war. And this is a big worry that the, the Obama administration had because it would mean that the United States would get dragged into a war at a time of its that was not of its choosing, that it would be a time of Israel's choosing. Um, and as bad as a war is, it's even worse if actually the timing of it is chosen by another country that does not communicate with the United States on these type of decisions. So this is a very, very serious and dangerous situation, and I think particularly mindful of the track record of Bolton uh, lying to the American public and fabricating evidence, the track record of the Trump administration's uh, contentious relationship with the truth, the track record of the Israelis and the Saudis trying to push the United States into a war, we have to be extra cautious when it comes to any type of statements or evidence put forward by any side, including the Iranians here, um, because this is literally a matter of war and peace. 
Yeah, it's an extraordinary time. Dr. Trita Parsi, professor at Georgetown University, author most recently of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. TritaParsi.com is website. You can tweet him at T. Parsi. Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me. You know, we've been talking about Iran and what do you think is going to happen here. As you heard from my conversation with Trita Parsi, I'm very concerned about this. One of the things that concerns me the most, now that we know how clearly Dick Cheney and George W. Bush lied to us about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in order to have a war that George W. Bush and Dick Cheney thought would carry them to victory in the 2004 election, and in fact did. Now that we know that they lied to us about this, Seymour Hersh, the iconic New York Times reporter, the guy who has broken all kinds of major you know, national security stories for the New York Times, hasn't worked for the New York Times for probably a decade or so, but he's still one of America's great investigative journalists, at an event that I believe was held by the Campus Press Journalism, had this to say. Check this out. There was a, a dozen ideas proffered how to, how to trigger a war. The one that interested me the most was, why don't we build, we in our shipyard, build four or five Iranian boats that look like Iranian PT boats, put Navy SEALs on them, with a lot of arms, and the next time one of our boats goes through the Straits of Hormuz, start a shoot-up. Might cost some lives. One of the things they learned in the incident was the American public, if you get the American, if you get the right incident, the American public will support, you know, bang, bang, kiss, kiss, you know, we're into it. Uh, look, um, uh, is it high school? Yeah. Are we playing high school with, you know, five 5,000 nuclear warheads in our arsenal? Yeah, we are. We're playing, you know, who's the first guy to run off the highway um, with us in Iran. Yeah, this is, this is pretty, with us in Iran. Um, this is pretty amazing stuff. And uh, keep in mind, what he's reporting here, and to the best of my knowledge, this has been backed up, or at least it hasn't been contradicted, is that Dick Cheney sat around in the White House and said, hey, let's have a war with Iran now. Right? And the way to do it is to build some boats that look like Iranian Navy boats and start that. So, so there's that. I wanted, I wanted to toss that up. The other topic I wanted to bring up as a big topic is the, the electoral strategy. Um, back in 1980, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party went in different directions in terms of their strategies to win elections. The Republican Party had been basically out of power since the Nixon era and were very, very despairing of ever getting back into power. But they decided, what the hell, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go for broke. Uh, we're going to put this Ronnie Reagan guy in, you know, up as, as our candidate, and he's going to run on a hardcore right-wing platform, and we're going to make it a base election. And what the Republicans had figured out was that about half of all the uh, people who are eligible to vote are not even registered to vote, and about half of the people who are registered to vote don't show up and vote in any given election. And, or maybe the numbers are slightly less than that, but you know, a good chunk of the people who are even registered to vote don't show up. So, and only about between three and 5% of Americans are quote, swing voters. They're not you know, strongly, they don't have some strong partisan affiliation. So instead of reaching for the swing voters, the Republicans said, screw the swing voters, we're gonna reach for our base. If we can get 5% more people who already agree with us to simply turn up and friggin' vote, we're gonna win. The Democrats, on the other hand, said, you know, we're gonna go for those swing voters. 
And so we're going to stop talking like Lyndon Johnson about the Great Society or Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And we're going to start talking like Dwight Eisenhower, who, you know, everybody loved, right? He was the, the classic middle-of-the-road guy. And so the Democrats moved to the right, trying to get the swing voters, and the Republicans moved to the hard right, reaching for their base. I think that uh, time has proven that the Republican strategy was very successful. So the question is, should the Democrats in this next election be going for swing voters, that is with a quote moderate candidate, or should they be trying to energize their base? I'll, I'll fill in some more of the details after the break. So yesterday for Father's Day, uh, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. <laughs> and boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in my, in my office chair. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm working on this next book. And it's like, ah, why? Because it's the X chair. The X chair provides customized support in an office chair. I mean, when it comes to supporting perfect posture, providing ideal back support, no office chair compares to the X chair. The secret is the X chair's dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL. This patented feature is what sets the X chair apart from every other office chair in the world. Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try an X chair for 30 days completely risk-free. X chair is on sale now for a hundred bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X wheels for your X chair. That's xchairtom.com xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading today from Dr. Bryant Welch's book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. This is in chapter one. Do you think there might be something just a little off in America, psychologically speaking? Of course, there's something wrong. We all know it. And in many quarters, our national behavior hovers on the brink of a very different, even deranged society that many fear is leading to fascism. Many of us play a game of ain't it awful about Donald Trump, and we talk in the latest psychological jargon about how odd and dangerous he is. But that's not really the issue in America, is it? Millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump, and the rest of us were unable to defeat him. The seemingly most incompetent person ever to run for president, and certainly the most bizarre. The real issue in America is what's wrong with our own minds. The 300 million of us who swim in the American pond that has not just led to Donald Trump and his obvious bizarreness, but to this massive breakdown in our psychological stability as a nation that we all feel in the deepest parts of ourselves. A decade ago, I wrote a book, State of Confusion, that addressed this problem and described an ominous series of psychological assaults to the stability of the American mind. In that work, I sounded an alarm over the then-emerging erratic psychological behaviors that have led to what we are now witnessing full-blown in America, the destabilization of the American mind. The election of Donald Trump was but a symptom. 
Harvard University law professor Lawrence Tribe summarized state of confusion as a vitally important investigation of how a cadre of ethically challenged political operatives and their religious and journalistic allies have gradually distorted and disabled the minds of ordinary Americans and have all but crippled the once extraordinary mind of America. Tribe added, it is not too late for us to reclaim our identity, but we will succeed only if we take to heart the lessons so lucidly laid bare by the remarkable work of this insightful psychologist and experienced political activist." End of quote. We did not heed Professor Tribe's advice, nor have we appreciated the issues I raised in State of Confusion. Instead, the destructive process has continued unabated and unrecognized, and the techniques used to manipulate the already vulnerable American mind have grown more powerful. The psychological processes and dynamics I described back then are very much the ones that are operative today. They are merely worse. We have now seen shocking states of psychological denial that our planet is hemorrhaging. Each new season spews forth spectacular new forms of environmental earthly protests of how the planet has been abused, its miraculous natural rhythms so powerfully, rapaciously disrespected. Unprecedented storms, fires, hurricanes, and our newest bomb cyclones give voice to Mother Earth's dismay. And yet millions of Americans, despite this evidence, go deeper into psychological denial. We dismantle our already inadequate environmental regulations created to safeguard the planet, hopefully before it becomes uninhabitable. Is something psychologically wrong here? We have successfully taken the excess out of our First Amendment right to free speech, by arguing free speech does not give one the right to holler fire in a crowded theater. But at the same time, when our Second Amendment says we cannot abridge our state's rights to have a militia, we are in some robotic logic required to give every angry person full access to weapons needed to quickly snuff out the life of everyone in that theater or school or concert or nightclub. Any angry person in America, be they terrorist, super patriot, or just someone who'd like to end their unhappy life with a glorious bang, is allowed to commit their own grand form of suicide with semi-automatic weapons that can literally kill another human being every second. Our taxed and now terribly compromised form of mental reasoning has led us to this paralysis in our problem-solving ability. We understandably blame the NRA, but how do we explain their minds? And how do we explain our inability to defeat their minority effort when we look in the faces of the grieving parents of Sandy Hook or Stoneman Douglas victims? Remarkably today, when our most precious surviving youth stand up bravely in protest, they are referred to as Nazis. We can understand these American minds and we can change them, but only if we will put the American mind itself front and center in our awareness and study of it. It's not just our environment that is deteriorating from the stresses we put on it. It is also our minds. In reissuing this supplemented version of State of Confusion, I'll show why the inherently vulnerable, increasingly traumatized, and badly manipulated American mind has reached a point that now threatens America's democracy, maybe even our survival. Focusing on Donald Trump's obvious impairments is a dangerous distraction that keeps us from attending to this real problem. Fortunately, I believe we do have the knowledge and resources to combat the true threat and reclaim the American mind with its glorious commitment to the freedom of the human spirit. But we must confront the reality of our situation now. We don't have another 10 years. I am a clinical psychologist and attorney and have had an unusual opportunity to understand current American political behavior, not only from work with patients, but also in my time spent in Washington, D.C. as a national spokesperson for psychology and mental health. 
My life passion has been the human mind as it shapes how we feel in the interior of our own personal private space, how it creates the way we experience our most intimate relationships, and how it influences the way we conduct our public affairs. State of Confusion by Bryant Welch. There's two ways to run an election in terms of winning the election. One way is to reach out to, I'm talking in the larger context of party rather than individual candidate, although individual candidates do this as well. One way is to say, we're going to reach out to the so-called swing voters, the people in the middle. We're going to reach out to the people who reliably vote year after year after year. We want these people to vote for us. And they, they can swing back and forth. And, and this has been the the principal method that the Democratic Party has adopted since 1980 is let's go after the people in the middle. After Reagan's victory in 1980 and then his, his much larger victory in 84, the Democrats have even kind of doubled down on that and said, okay, we're going to move even farther into the basically old Republican territory, Dwight Eisenhower territory, embrace the middle. Republicans, on the other hand, have said, you know, there's a whole bunch of people in our base, people who would, would normally vote for us who just don't show up to vote. And that's why we lose elections. And so to hell with the middle. The middle is only 3 to 5% of Americans. We want our base, right? There's, there's 30, 40% of Americans who completely agree with us, but only half of them show up and vote every year or every election. So if we can get, you know, 20, 30% of the other half to come out and vote, the people who already support us, then we will win. And that's what they've been doing, and that's what's been happening. Now, in the Democratic primary right now, what you're seeing is a couple of candidates, and at the top of that pile are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, running a base strategy, as the Republicans have been doing since 1980, and the Democrats have not. And they're saying, we're you know, we're not, yeah, you know, the people in the middle are fine. The people in the middle on issues actually agree with us. The majority of Americans, including swing voters, would like single-payer health care. They would like, you know, fully funded education. They would like free college. They want Social Security and Medicare to be strong and to survive and all those kind of things. So, yeah, of course, we're going to reach out to those people in the middle. But principally, what we're trying to do is energize our base. We've got some bold new proposals to take us you know, back to, to, to roll back Reaganism. Now, you know, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton never talked about rolling back Reaganism. They never specifically called out Reaganism. They never specifically said, you know, we've been in, we were in this New Deal Keynesian economics system in the United States from 1933 until 1981, and it built the strongest middle class in the history of the United States. And then we went into, you know, the old-fashioned horse and sparrows, or they reinvented it and called it trickle-down economics or supply-side economics, Reaganism in 1981, and we've been there ever since. And, you know, the Democratic Party has literally not said, since Lyndon Johnson was president, that we're embracing the values of the New Deal, of, of Franklin Roosevelt. This was the speech that Bernie gave the other day, Elizabeth Warren refers to this from time to time, and there's a few other Democratic candidates who are embracing that, that kind of a strategy. You know, Andrew Yang, Marianne Williamson, um, who, are, who are reaching out to the Democratic, to the genuine Democratic base. 
And then you've got Democratic candidates in the primary who are saying, no, no, we're, we're going to go for those people in the middle who really want Democrats and Republicans to talk to each other and work with each other. We, we're, we're going to embrace the, uh, the Dwight Eisenhower strategy or the Clinton-Obama strategy, frankly, which is we're going to reach out to people in the middle and, you know, if our base shows up, great. If our base doesn't show up, well, you know, we've always got our base. There's always going to be a certain number of Democrats who are going to come out and vote for us. And in fact, you'll, you know, you'll recall that there, was, there were leaked comments to that effect, and I think it was the 2012 election coming out of the Obama campaign that, that kind of scandalized the Democratic Party. You know, where, you know, hey, we don't have to worry about our base. Um, you know, we've always got the base. Maybe it was the, the Clinton campaign. I'm not, I'm not sure which one it was, but, uh, you know, it, it, it happened. And I'm of the opinion, frankly, that this Democratic Party strategy of appealing to swing voters is a mistake and that the Democrats should go back to what they were doing in 1930, in the election of 1932, 36, 40, 1940, 1944, the election of 1948. I mean, you know, Democrats won all of those elections by appealing to their base. And, you know, in 52, Democrats started to kind of reaching out to Republicans because of the, the beating that they took in, in 1947 in the election of 46-47, uh, you know, when Taft-Hartley got passed and the, and the labor movement got whacked. And they kind of backed away from that a little bit. And we got Dwight Eisenhower, although Dwight Eisenhower was widely loved. In fact, Dwight Eisenhower, everybody thought he was going to run as a Democrat before he announced in, in, early, in late 1951 that he was going to run as a Republican. So anyhow, we had Eisenhower Nixon, you know, for eight years. And then John Kennedy embraced uh, essentially a base strategy again, you know, saying we're going to take on organized crime. We're going to we're going to we're going to uh, strengthen Social Security. We're going to expand, uh, you know, uh, proposing Medicare. He didn't finish it. Lyndon Johnson finished it. But proposing Medicare, things like that. I mean, this was a base strategy that Kennedy and LBJ both did. And LBJ, and, and, you know, was kind of the last Democratic president. Jimmy Carter did a little bit of both. You know, he, on energy policy, he was really great. And on, you know, being, you know, a good neighbor and all that kind of stuff, he, he did really great stuff. But by and large, Jimmy Carter's strategy, you know, he wasn't an aggressive base turner-outer. And I think that's why he lost to Reagan in 1980, frankly, because he was, in fact, the last two years of his administration, he de deregulated the trucking industry, he de de deregulated the shipping industry, he de deregulated much of the railroads. Um, you know, Carter was moving in that Republican direction, trying to, quote, grab the middle. It didn't work. He lost. Reagan was going right for his base. The first speech that Ronald Reagan gave after he was nominated for the Republican uh, presidency, you know, for the, as candidate for Republican presidency in, in 1980, the first, the first public speech that he gave after the Republican convention was in Philadelphia, Mississippi, or just outside the the Nebosha, Kenosha, Nebosha, whatever it is, the the county fair. You know where where. Then this is the county. This is right down the road from where Schwarmer and Cheney and Goodman were were murdered. These three civil rights workers. You know that they made the movie Mississippi Burning out of. And Donald Trump Jr. This is where he gave his first speech in beh on behalf of his father. And he said, you know, I'm stepping in Ronald Reagan's footsteps. And in both cases, the speech was about states' rights. In other words, keep down black people, promote white people. Reagan catered to his base. Trump catered to his base. It's worked for Republicans. And Democrats have to make a decision. Is this going to be a base election? 
Because if so, they damn well better have a genuinely progressive candidate running for president. Or, is th or are they going to appeal to the swing voters? Is this going to be a middle-of-the-road election? And they're going to try and capture, you know, that, that giant middle. And, you know, you can make arguments on both sides. In fact, I'd love to hear yours. And by the way, the Democrats who say, no, don't do a base election, are pointing to people like George McGovern, you know, who got wiped out. And he was the peace candidate. But he got wiped out. And, you know, by Richard Nixon. And they're saying... You can't run, you know, this is, this is the message of the Democrats who are saying, no, don't make it a base election, make it a, a swing vote election. Is that when we've had base candidates, Michael Dukakis, another one, you know, he was appealing to the Democratic base, he was trying to take us back. I would argue that uh, neither McGovern nor Dukakis were really base candidates. McGovern's principal message was anti-war. Nixon was, his principal message was anti-war. He had a secret plan to end the war, remember. And which was a lie, of course. In fact, he extended the war. But, you know, we didn't know that he was lying to us. And, and, and I would say, you know, frankly, the same thing with Dukakis, that Dukakis was taken down by the base strategy, George Herbert Walker Bush's base strategy. Lee Atwater ran this campaign along with Paul Manafort, when Lee Atwater and Paul Manafort were in business together as Republican consultants with the Willie Horton ads. That's a base strategy. It's appealing to the racist white base of the Republican Party. And, you know, the Republicans keep going back to that base. So Trump is rolling out his campaign, and he's saying as he's rolling out his campaign, we're going to put a million immigrants in jail and deport them. We're going to start a mass deportation campaign. Now, this is not popular with swing voters, but it is popular with his base. He is unambiguously running a base campaign. What should the Democrats do, number one? And number two, is this going to work for the Republicans? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Or has Trump's bizarre behavior shrunk the Republican base to the point where even if he can get a large chunk of his base to turn out, it won't be enough to get him reelected? Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-G-O-L-D. We have now concentration camps in the United States. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is calling them that, concentration camps. And in my opinion, this is part of Donald Trump's re-election strategy. It's a, it's a play to the base strategy. Oh, this is from John Wagner today in the Washington Post. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pressed her case Tuesday that the Trump administration is running concentration camps at the U.S.-Mexico border amid criticism from Republicans who said she was demeaning Jews exterminated in the Holocaust. 
During a live stream Monday night, the freshman lawmaker decried the conditions of migrant detention facilities and, uh, you know, highlighted his decision to hold some children in an Oklahoma Army base that was used as an internment camp for Japanese Americans during World War II. This is, this is actually what she said on social media. She said, the fact that concentration camps are now an institutionalized practice in the home of the free is extraordinarily disturbing, and we need to do something about it. She accused Trump of, quote, conducting an authoritarian and fascist presidency. I don't use those words lightly, Ocasio-Cortez said. I don't use those words just to throw bombs. I use that word because that is what an administration that creates concentration camps is. A presidency that creates concentration camps is fascist. And it's very difficult to say that. And, uh, you know, she's just like into this she, and, and tweeting this. And I think, you know, says, please do AOC a favor and spend a few minutes learning some actual history, says uh, Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz. Um, right. And, oh, you, you, just, you demean the memory of six million Jews exterminating the Holocaust. Now, there was a difference between concentration camps and death camps. The concentration camps were places like, uh, like uh, Dachau, where, you know, they were labor, labor camps and detention camps. Yes, uh, a lot of people died there, mostly from cholera and from being overworked. There were some who were, who were killed, actually, uh, by machine gun fire. Um, they were prisoners of war at Dachau. But mostly it was a concentration camp, as opposed to a death camp like, like Auschwitz, which was, did nothing but kill people. I mean, you know, it was basically just a death camp. And there is a difference between the two. And Ocasio-Cortez, I think, is right in this language. Whose base is bigger, the Democrats or the Republicans? Mark in San Diego, your, uh, your thoughts on, you wanted to weigh in on election strategy and how this should be played. And also, you know, I, I just want to add, I really believe that Trump, he's going to use ICE, a, a government agency, for purely political purposes. He said millions of people are going to be detained and deported. All he needs is a good, clean shot photograph of one family being rousted out of their house. And that will go viral and that will activate his base and it'll horrify the rest of America. What do you think about all this, Mark? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that he shrunk his base because I don't think a base election is going to work for him. You're absolutely right. You thought the kids in cages was bad. Wait till they start separating uh, parents and the, and the kids come home from school and the parents aren't there. Yeah, that'll work great. But anyway, I'm so glad you brought up this topic of electoral strategy for the Democrats because they just don't seem to learn their lesson. People respect courage. They respect people that with spine and backbone. Look what happened at the town hall of Justin Amash. He didn't know what he was going to face after he came out uh, uh, the lone Republican for impeachment. And guess what happened? He got a standing ovation before right. he started speaking. People respect backbone. What we need is we need a reincarnation of a Harry Truman type to uh, to become the Democratic candidate. Yeah. And by the way, I don't think. I don't think Joe Biden's going to make it. I, I, he may be on top of the polls right now because of name recognition. Yeah. But uh, I think that once the debates start, he, he's a bad candidate. I mean, he ran twice before. He didn't even reach New Hampshire. At this point in 2007, late 2007, uh, it was Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama. And she was way ahead. And, of course, we know how that worked out. I think that's the reason Elizabeth Warren is surging in the polls, because she is running a base campaign. Yep. She's wonky. She's getting with the issues. 
and she's standing up and, and saying that Trump should be impeached. And that's what people are responding to. And watch out for Elizabeth Warren. She might become the, the first woman president of the United States. I agree. I, I think that uh, there's actually a very good chance of that. Mark, thank you very much for the call. Rich and Cedra Woolley, Washington. Hey, Rich, what's up? We need a base strategy with a base candidate who can remind the people in the center and those Obama-Trump voters, remind them that they are part of our base. He's got the candidates going to be able to pull a Jeff Foxworthy and say, if uh, you agree that people should be allowed to organize in unions, you may be a liberal. And just <laughs> remind people. Right. I love it. They, they are liberal. And have the numbers there and be able to say, you know, Whatever it is, 98% of you want to improve uh, Social Security, 76% of you want to have uh, Medicare for all. Because, and here's what the Republicans are really good at they're really good at getting everybody on our team, right? The team, making you feel like you're on the winning team. People want to be part of the, the big group. And if we remind people that we are a center left nation, majority center left nation, remind them that we are the big team yeah. and they are the, the minority. I'm, I'm with you. Come I'm with them. you. Excellent points all, Rich. They just want to be reminded and woke, I guess is the word. But there you go. Reminded. Yeah. And I love that Jeff Foxworthy uh, suggestion. I am going to uh, I'm going to play with that. We're going to kick that around here. Rich, thanks for the call. Michael in Denver. Hey, Michael, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. What I'd like to see is with the 24 candidates that we have, the four that weren't allowed on, which I'm still a little sore about, that the DNC, the DCC, the campaigns and everything, uh, we go into this uh, battle in 2020 shoulder to shoulder and all. We support whoever is there. Uh, whoever comes to the top. That's a given. We, 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 uh, well, it's a given, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, you have to get that out there. And, all, and the other thing is grassroots. We, here in Colorado, we're trying to do, a, you know, a really, really intense job in organizing the grassroots. We have to do that 50-state strategy of getting the grassroots uh, energized, to go out and talk to people, to register people to vote and everything, and to explain in the simplest languages what the differences between Donald Trump and the rest of America is. Yeah. And that is that what we're looking at as an authoritarian, ultra-corrupt nation, if we don't get that way with... And by the way, it's not just Donald Trump, Michael, it's the entire Republican Party now, well, exactly. with, the, with the possible exception yeah. of Justin Amash. I mean, that's it. Right. That, that, that's right. And when you see Mr. Nay and all that, how he, what his history is and uh, Mr. Jolly down in Florida, they've turned away from the Republican Party and they are talking to the truth now. Yes. So we have to get more Mr. Amash and Mr. Nay, Mr. Jolly to speak to the truth. There's a few of them out there and all that. They are coming along. We've got to bring them along to show the differences. And from a 22-year Navy veteran and all that, I am ready to go on the ground, in the sea, in the air, to get the word out. God bless you. Michael, thank you for the call. And I'm with you. And we need to bring the Democratic Party together, but I think we need to bring it together around shared values rather than personality. 
And so that's why that's one of the reasons why I get a little uncomfortable when people call and say, well, yeah, it should be a base campaign or it shouldn't be a base campaign. And therefore, this candidate is going to be, you know, there's there there are at, at least a half a dozen solid, solid progressives running for president right now on the Democratic side. We'll be back with Luke Vargas. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price, uh, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure. But it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings. International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a Constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record had, was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the Constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence and it tells the tale I'll share in Chapter 2. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary, 
Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-Federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first 10 amendments to the Federalist document, the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies that compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. On the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News based out of New York. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. And uh, Luke, uh, Mohamed Morsi, the uh, former the, to the best of my knowledge, the only democratically elected president of Egypt in that, in the, what, 6,000-year history of that country, died in a courtroom yesterday. Erdogan is saying that he didn't die naturally. Is Erdogan admitting that he was tortured? 
It's a little unclear. I may have used slightly more delicate phrasing in saying, I was going to say, Egypt's first democratically elected president, and you could argue the only one that's been elected in free and fair elections since. I mean, I guess technically you can call BC's elections democratic, but whether or not, uh, yeah. well, we, we know... There well, he banned opposition parties candidate. and all kinds of stuff. I mean. Right, right, right. But anyways, yeah, so Morsi, the, this uh, Muslim Brotherhood president, who was only given about a year by the Egyptian military to try and fix that country's many, many decades of problems uh, before his entire political movement was essentially turned, you know, uh, framed as a terrorist organization and then chased away from Egyptian politics, died in a courtroom yesterday. He had given a statement uh, and then collapsed the footage, which is not available, but we have been told sort of, uh, you know, people saw this. There was a bunch of other Muslim Brotherhood suspects or, you know, sort of people who were alleged to have committed crimes in this glass cage, which is how, you know, the suspects are, are handled in Egyptian courts. And some of them were physicians who tried to resuscitate him. Uh, the state TV in Egypt says he died from a heart attack. The family of Morsi says he, sp- he suffered from diabetes for many years. And uh, as you and many of your listeners know, that is definitely a deadly condition. Uh, absent adequate medical plus uh, that raises the risk of a heart attack right and we from the picture we're getting from morsi's lawyers and his family the conditions under which he were detained uh make it unlikely he was really getting top-notch medical treatment uh you know suffice it to say i mean he was in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day despite some laws on the books in Egypt saying family members have a right to visit um, someone on trial once a month. Uh, for the six years he was in prison, he got three family visits, so he was denied oh, really uh, very basic, I think, uh, rights. Uh, and then secretly buried this morning, or quietly buried under very, very tight Egyptian military and security uh, presence. Um, you know, so it's all a little bit suspicious. Uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has closed ties to the Muslim Brotherhood he was a friend of Morsi's. I have to say, there's, there's, you know, there's certainly political elements involved here. Right. You know, one could say there is a, a, an Islamist uh, effort underway uh, on Erdogan's part to try and, you know, build a movement around him in Turkey, and so he's very much in favor of this notion that, you know, the, the this uh, is a legitimate political that, strategy. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And but and I would just point out, you know, sort of what is where is Egypt in this whole thing. You know, you have a crisis uh, in Egypt's southern neighbor, Sudan, right now, where the people of that country are calling for the military to step aside and allow for civilian governance. Well, you know, one of the, right. the countries that's been most vocal in supporting the military in Sudan has been Egypt under yep. al-Sisi, who I think is very uh, wary of allowing a popular democratic movement to basically reject military rule. Right. LCC had, had you know, came to power in a military coup. I mean, let's make exactly. that very clear. So, right. so yeah. any, you know, anybody in that part of, uh, you know, sort of northeastern Africa who is using people power to unseat, you know, uh, really problematic military governance, that's going to catch CC's radar. So Egypt is caught up in a whole big maelstrom right now, but it's something to watch. Uh, The UN has already been called for an independent investigation of the circumstances surrounding Morsi's death. I doubt we'll get that, given the way Egypt operates, but something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Now, Trump has just announced that he's sending somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500, I've seen different headlines Mm -hmm. on this, troops to the Middle East. What does that mean, and how are our allies, how are the countries in the regions reacting to that announcement? 
Well, obviously, Germany, France, Britain, the sig- other signatories, Russia and China to the Iran nuclear deal, are very unnerved by the rising tensions. They're still calling on the U.S. to remain within the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, what we would call the nuclear deal. Uh, a top advisor to the European Union's foreign policy chief today gave a statement saying, look, the one thing that the media in the U.S. keeps neglecting to talk about is that all of these this crisis is happening for one reason, quote, that has not been cited so far, which is the fact that the U.S. has violated the nuclear deal, end quote. So clearly the blame seems to be coming our direction. Um, I will point out that Iran has said that within 10 days it is going to technically violate the Iran nuclear deal by holding on to more low-enriched uranium than it's allowed under the terms of the nuclear deal. It's not really a a step that makes Iran an imminent nuclear weapons risk, but it'll be, it's a a test of how, in particular, the Trump administration is going to interpret that and how they're going to spin it to the American public and and the world as to, I'm sure they're not going to be quite as nuanced as we are in saying, oh, this doesn't really change the breakout time. Uh, And Donald Trump said just hours ago in an interview that's just been released by Time magazine that he would, quote, definitely go to war with Iran over nuclear weapons. Weapons. We'll get to that. So there's our, our, our next battleground. Oh, jeez. Just what we need. Amazing. Luke Vargas, uh, Talk Media News. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Thanks a lot, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Jasper in Atlanta. Hey, Jasper, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Okay. Tom, would it be too much if you ever ran for office? It would um, be. Yeah. You know, I do. I, you know, I write books and I do a radio show and I'm pretty good at it. I'd be a lousy politician. I, you know, it just takes a certain I don't have the, the patience that, say, uh, you know, Mark Pocan has um, and 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 frankly, uh, the youth. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you, you know, okay. do but what you, know, you do well, Jasper. That, yeah. You mentioned um, um, some things that were going on with Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to me that. Uh, the things that his wife is doing, I was reading about her and the the collusion that, that she's going in and doing the things. It got Tom Price and all the rest of them put out of government. Yeah. So why is it why is it not that it's not brought before the people? And why cannot Democratic people in Congress keep these things before the people so people can see what these, this moment is doing? And I'm believing that if they did an investigation on. Uh, Mitch McConnell, like they did on Donald Trump, or his finances, you'll find that there's a whole lot of things going on with that man. Oh, yeah, I I agree. Elaine Chow is Mitch McConnell's wife. Her family is a uh, multi-hundred millionaire uh, shipping family out of Taiwan. They have shoveled millions of dollars to McConnell and helped build his political career. And uh, she is now the transportation secretary. And as such, she has been getting people from her family business in to meet with the, the Chinese during special China trips. You know, Taiwan and China are kind of a dicey relationship. Um, she has been making money off her position. If the reporting that I'm reading in the Washington Post is correct. And I think that the House Oversight Committee should be holding hearings on Elaine Chow's corruption and Mitch McConnell's corruption uh, immediately. But, uh, you know, I, and maybe they're maybe they're planning on it or maybe the Democrats are cowering in the corner because they don't want to piss off Mitch McConnell. I don't know. But, Jasper, I completely agree with you. Thanks for the call. Brad in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Hey, Brad, what's up? Yes, I think Trump has only two things to campaign on. Uh, the economy and hate, hate, bigotry, intolerance, and just uh, what I term ugly Americanism. 
Well, um, and, and Brad, when you say that Trump is going to run on the economy, this is the thing that I'm very skeptical about, because I think increasingly working class Americans get it that the stock market is not the economy and the stock market's for rich people. You know, wages are for working people and wages have, been, have you know, wages have basically not budged since the 1970s and, you know, and, the and late I 70s. Think, and, I, and, and I think a lot of the people are duped in the idea that just having a job, a job, not a great paid job, is something, but it, it could definitely be better. And the stratification of, uh, of the, I don't know, population or electorate with the top having so much control of the wealth, um, I think that's, everybody's thinking they have a chance to get there. I, I don't know the mass. I think people have given up on that. I, you know, yeah, the, the, the old Republican thing used to be, you too can be a billionaire someday, so we should treat the billionaires nice. I, you know, maybe with a lottery, but I, I don't think that, that that working people get you know, are buying this crap anymore. They, you know, the Republicans have been selling us this snake oil since 1981, and and Americans have figured out the the con. Brad, I got to run, but thank you for the call, Bob in Skokie, Illinois. Hey, Bob, you got the last minute here. What's up? Okay, Tom, I'll be real quick. First of all, I. I can't wait to take a look at Sue Stack at the end of today. At that monologue he gave us about 40 minutes ago about all the things that Trump has done yeah. that most of us don't realize or certainly don't have at our fingertips. I had an idea about the, uh, and this is way, way early, but whoever it is that ends up debating Trump, because you know he's going to lie every time he moves his mouth. Um, ever since John Kerry was debating Bush and pointed out that Bush had said, that he didn't much think about uh, bin Laden anymore, and right. what Kerry had said in that regard was an exaggeration. I've often wondered why a Democrat doesn't just call on the media right then and there uh, to, to point out after the, or to actually show after the debate who was telling the truth. And I think it's going to be something that a Democrat's going to have to do with Trump, and even perhaps put the real challenge on and say, I challenge Fox News and particularly perhaps Shepard Smith to be the one to show the entire country that the that, that Donald Trump just lied about this, this, and this, yeah. and just kind of keep a count as she... Well, she I'm hoping along. that the Democrats learn their lesson from this. You know, John Kerry in that debate should have simply, should have simply said, you know, George W. Bush, you and Dick Cheney lied to the American people about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, about Saddam Hussein's intents. You knew it was a lie. You had told your biographer you were going to lie about this. And, and you know, we're, we, the American people, are not going to put up with it anymore. But John Kerry was too much of a gentleman to use the word lie. I, you know, Bob, I, I hope those days are past. Bob, thanks a lot for the call. And, uh, and my apologies to the rest of you who are on hold right now. We'll pick up your calls tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, it's the end of the show, so don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It really and truly isn't. You can't have a functioning republic if you don't have an engaged electorate, if you don't have people who are actually registered to vote so that they can participate. So double-check your registration. Make sure all your friends are registered. Share the good word about progressive media and get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.